The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, Weekside Podcast listeners. The Divisional Weekend is behind us. Plenty of highs and lows that we'll get to a little bit later on during the podcast. But uh, I don't know. This was like, it was a weird weekend, Jenny, because it seemed like all the things that we were promised, sort of these epic matchups, there wasn't that like signature game until really kind of towards the the halfway point of of Buccaneer Saints. But even then, the game wasn't really about Drew Brees and Tom Brady. It didn't feel like the matchup that we were promised. I would say the same thing with a lot of these. I mean, Kansas City and Cleveland was not close until the very end, and under the circumstances, it didn't really feel like a close game that you'd want to watch, and I, I don't know. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I wasn't feeling really the energy of, uh, of Divisional Weekend as much as I have in the past. Yeah, usually this is the best weekend of the NFL calendar. There's four games. You know, conference Championship Weekend, there's only two, so this is always one juncture of the season that just feels like it has so much consequence, but also there's so much football to watch. And yeah, this year's games didn't quite live up to the hype. There was also the damper of both Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes leaving the game early, being placed in the concussion protocol, both of them having somewhat nasty hits with their their head banging off the turf in Jackson's case. Mahomes's case seemed like he banged the front of his helmet a little bit, but also got his neck twisted while being tackled. So that was sort of a damper on the weekend, seeing two young, bright stars leave the game with potentially serious injuries. Uh, But overall, yeah, Connor, uh, the matchups that we were promised, particularly Bucks saints it was not as we expected it, perhaps. Or maybe it was. Maybe we should have expected some old guy football, but that's really what it looked like to 40 something quarterbacks for once really looked their age. Yeah. And it makes you wonder if you're Tampa Bay and I've said this all year, and this is great that you've made it this far. And if they beat the Packers, then, you know, consider me, you know, never bringing this up again and that I'll finally admit that I'm wrong. And probably I am wrong, but I don't know where they go from here. Like this season is the payoff, right? Beyond what you have done right now, beyond what is going to happen in this game, uh, especially if you lose, like that's it. You know, uh, Tom Brady comes back next year and he's 44. Um, You know, even if you get, you know, 90% of what you got this year, there's no guarantee that the defense is going to be this good. The defense is going to be another year older. You're going to get picked apart. You're receiving core and free agency. And so I think that a lot of this is just, you know, was it worth it? to make this run to the conference championship game. I guess if you're Jason Light, who is an embattled general manager going into this, you might say yes, because I think this keeps you around for a little bit longer. If you're Bruce Arians, um, certainly you've kind of weathered a really turbulent uh, beginning of the season as a coach, and you're still around, which is good. But I don't know. I I don't know if I... if the end justified the means there because you really sacrificed a lot of 
foundational roster building for you know your microwave in this popcorn and and hoping that you're really going to enjoy it. Well, to play devil's advocate or to counter your point, Connor, I would say it has been an enjoyable run. The Buccaneers had a sneakily long playoff drought because Cleveland True. was hanging out there, and then before that, Buffalo, which they obviously en- ended a couple of years ago. Uh, Bucks kind of were forgotten behind those two, uh, but they were next after Cleveland, so it had been a long time for the franchise. So this has been a, a fun run to watch, and hey, the Bucks really uh, – they clobbered the Packers when they met during the regular season, but coming out of these games, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show, Connor, it, it really looks like this is the Packers year in the NFC, and it would be hard to s- imagine, uh, well, anything's possible in the NFL. I don't want to go that far, but <laughs> the Packers look to me like the clear favorites in that game. Are they the team of... Are they the team of weak side podcast from this point forward? Because we're out of we're out of bird teams, uh, which was a tough weekend, obviously, to lose the Ravens the way that we did. And I guess beyond uh, like an ornithological tie-in, you would root for a team that is like uh, n- like non-incorporated, and uh, you know, from you know, a sense like feels like like unionized in a way like I don't know is that our team because they're is that the team of the weak side pod at this point that's a good question I mean I don't think you're going to agree with me but don't pirates often carry around parrots oh yeah so if we're keeping up with the bird theme perhaps the buccaneers should be the natural extension Connor what I always appreciate about you is your willingness to deliver both the good news and the bad news. And <laughs> the bad news is that I might have to eventually find myself uh, rooting for the Buccaneers. But the good news is we have a lot of fun things to talk about today. Um, and I'll kick it off here with news topic number one. And that's that Deshaun Watson wants off the Texans, which was the word in Jenny and Greg's uh, latest piece on the organizational meltdown in Houston, which if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Uh, Houston has a problem which was a funny uh, uh, kind of a great headline uh, to go along with that. It's uh, It was a daily cover on uh, Friday or Saturday, I believe, last week. So go find that and catch up on all the, the things that are going on there. And uh, while there have reportedly been no formal trade conversations, I don't think there's any doubt that Houston is fielding calls right now because Watson is better than all but four or five quarterbacks in the NFL. And if teams sense that he's available, I'm sure that they're going to, um, you know, explore those options. And so I ask you, Jenny, uh, where do you think he might land? Where's a team that might be in a good spot to acquire him? And I don't know, do you see him moving? And if so, where do you think he might go? I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with the head coach hiring. I said this on the Monday morning podcast with Gary Gramling, but it depends what direction they go with choosing the head coach. If they say, for instance, go with Eric Bannemi, who Deshaun Watson has supported to ownership, then maybe he sees a path forward with the team. And so I would be surprised if he made a trade demand or made any kind of definitive statement about his future in Houston before they make the head coach hire. But once that happens, depending on how that unfolds, who they pick, etc., cetera, uh, then I think things could come to a head. I mean, Ultimately, it is a difficult path to go down to demand a trade. Uh, 
what is it? Uh, he signed an extension in September, so we're just a matter of months out from that. Um, but it's also an era where players are making their opinions known, and that's a good thing. He has legitimate concerns about the future, the path forward in Houston. He raised some of these concerns through these conversations with Cal McNair, but also publicly when he said there's no real foundation moving forward. And that was putting the organization on notice, figure out the foundation and you need to do that to have top players. But ultimately careers are short. Deshaun Watson has remarkable talent, but this was a wasted season. We all saw that clip where JJ Watt was walking off the field with him after the season finale and said we should have had 11 wins. I mean, when you have a quarterback who played as well as Watson, it was disappointing to watch the season end the way that it did. So he has, you know, I think it's likely or not likely, but he it's clear that he wants out at this point in time, which is what we reported in the story. Now, how that develops, there's a lot of different paths that it can go from here. But... I don't think it's – I certainly don't think the idea that he's done in Houston, that shouldn't be waved off by saying it's too hard to get out of, you know, they've made too much of a financial commitment. Players have a lot of leverage. You know what's funny is um, about this whole thing, and I kind of got mad at uh, – not Deshaun, but the situation in general is, you know, uh, in uh, some of the subsequent reports that um, kind of springboarded off of your guys' excellent story, the Miami Dolphins were brought up as a place that Deshaun Watson would want to go play, um, and they have a lot of picks, and the Texans can get their pick back. And uh, and it was, like, casually mentioned that, like, oh, yeah, and they'll just send Tua over. And, like, <laughs> if you're Deshaun, it's like, well, you're just buried him in the hell that you've tried to escape like you know that's not a cool thing to do you know I'm sure yeah. Tua is looking around like uh oh this doesn't sound good but um, if you'll humor me uh, I have um, I, I made a little list of, of the best Deshaun Watson landing spots and um, I'm just going to run through like the top three that I think are the most interesting to me and the first one which um, Daniel Jeremiah laid this out too um, a little bit earlier on on Twitter, but I mean the Jets are a team that you know Deshaun Watson wanted the Texans to interview Robert Sala for the head coaching job. They didn't do it. Sala took the Jets' job. Um, you have uh, Mike Lafleur as the offensive coordinator, so that's kind of like a sought after scheme that they're going to be running there. And the Jets just are loaded with picks. They have they could give the Texans the second overall pick this year to draft a successor. They could give them a second round pick or first round pick next year and still have first rounders in each of the next two years. They have plenty of mid round picks. They have space. Um, I don't know. Like I, I think that if, if you're Joe Douglas and you somehow wind up with basically Jamal Adams for Deshaun Watson, you win GM of the century. I like that projection, Connor. I mean, you need a franchise that is desperate to make a move that is motivated to make a move and that has the resources to make a move and the jets would check off all three of those boxes yeah i think that uh the other teams and i'm not going to get you know too deep in it, the dolphins are certainly one i mean they have some of the pick flexibility there but you wonder like uh, you know deshaun watson had mentioned um or you know deshaun watson people who had spoken to deshaun watson had mentioned the lack of a state income tax as an attractiveness um you know which you can't really get in new york 
Yes. That's the sound of both a dolphin and a very happy person that doesn't have to pay state income tax. <laughs> Um, but so, does, but then the other thing was culture, right? And if you're coming from a place that is such a poisonous culture-related situation, you know, how aren't places like Pittsburgh attractive to you? Where you have a guy like Mike Tomlin there, um, maybe you know, looking to move on from Ben Roethlisberger, they have until March uh, March nineteenth to make a decision there. But some of those teams feel really interesting to me. There's some blue blood franchises out there, the the Steelers, uh, the Broncos that don't have quarterbacks right now, don't necessarily have the draft capital. I think like the Jets or the Dolphins do to generate something like this. But even the 49ers, where these are teams that uh, have a good culture or at least seem to be creating a good culture, have some steadiness at the coaching uh, position, and you know, I'm sure they'd be embraced with open arms there. Yeah, I think the list is bigger than maybe it might seem on first glance, right? Every team that has any kind of uncertainty at the quarterback position should be discussing, does this make sense? Is this something we can do? Because Deshaun Watson, despite the chaos around him in in Houston, despite the fact that his top receiver was traded away, despite all of that, he had an MVP caliber season. I mean, the way he played was good enough to be MVP, despite the fact that the team only won four games. So he would be an upgrade. Now it's up to all of these other teams to have these conversations. Can we make an offer? Could we be in the mix? But there are so many teams, the majority of teams, Watson would be an upgrade at quarterback. So you need to at least have that conversation in your building and be reaching out to the Texans whether or not Watson has made a formal request, which to this point, we have no knowledge that he has, but you still need to make that reach out. Belichick somehow swoops in <laughs> with his former employees, Easterby and Casario, Man. wheels and deals, and gets the real Brady replacement of the future. Now that know. would be the real stunner of the season, Connor. I love it. I love it. All right. What do we have for uh, news topic number two? New head coaches are flying off the board with Brandon Staley landing in L.A. with the Chargers, Dan Campbell getting the job in Detroit, Arthur Smith getting the job in Atlanta, Urban Meyer taking over in Jacksonville, and Robert Sala getting the job in New York. Only the Eagles remain, and Houston, which feels like a good time to grade what we've seen so far. Let's go down the list, shall we? Well, let's first... um you know, and we'll get to this a little bit later on, but uh, just another uh, unencouraging year for the Rooney Rule in general. I think you know we can talk all we want about how um, these hiring the hiring process should be going, and I think that there was some encouragement on behalf of the people who kind of advocate for this stuff that uh, with a, an abundance of virtual interviews, that they thought that maybe more minority candidates could kind of wedge their foot in the door here and really uh, sort of take off. But it seems to have gone exactly how we thought it would go. The Urban Meyer hire in Jacksonville is really no different than the John Gruden hire a couple of years ago, where it seemed like uh, a foregone conclusion the second that he emerged on the market that the Jaguars were going to hire him and they weren't going to really take any other candidates very seriously. And so I feel like we're kind of coming down that path again. I think Pro Football Talk reported today that Brandon Staley was going to be hired by the Chargers no matter what the whole time. And so it's like, okay, you know, uh, and I just feel like teams are missing out on, you know, 
and I think it's it's valuable for people to talk to guys like Tony Dungy to to talk to people who are in the room when Mike Tomlin was hired in Pittsburgh and say, hey, this rule's here for a reason. Like you're supposed to go into this with an open mind. Doesn't seem like a whole lot of teams are, but uh, just a recognition that hey, this is where we are. You know. Yeah, I think the Brandon Staley hire raised some eyebrows around the league. Uh, he he doesn't have a ton of experience. Which listen, that that is not necessarily precluding someone from getting a job, but it does kind of speak to these patterns we see in the hiring cycle and the charger share market with the Rams who had success with Sean McVay and Brandon Staley's path and rise bears a lot of similarities. And obviously he was on McVay's staff last year. Uh, So ultimately the hires are made by owners and we still have an, ownership that is the vast majority is white men. There are a handful of exceptions, but that is who controls the ownership ranks. And so I think more need work needs to be done to overcome some of these implicit biases because it is another disappointing hiring cycle. There are only two head coaches, two black head coaches in the NFL currently. And uh, another hiring cycle where the results were not what some people had hoped, despite uh, the off-season work to try to compel teams to broaden their search, to take more candidates seriously, to get more candidates of color in front of owners, the results have not been that different. I also noticed, and with the Chargers, you know, there's some discussion that Shane Steicher, the offensive coordinator under Anthony Lynn, could just stay on. And I thought that was odd because... Why not then keep Lynn as your head coach and give him the chance to hire a new defensive coordinator, which to me would have made sense for the path forward. You know, the offensive staff did a great job with Herbert, but that included quarterbacks coach Pat Hamilton. That also included Anthony, Anthony Lynn himself. And he didn't get nearly any of the credit for Herbert's fast development in just one year. And the defense really let down the Chargers in a lot of games. They had all of those blown leads, and that falls on the defense. So why would you not just give him the chance to hire a new defensive coordinator? And the fact that you're retaining the offensive staff indicates either you didn't think Lynn was that responsible for Herbert's development, which is not true. Herbert himself has said otherwise. Or these coaches have contracts and you don't want to invest more money into hiring a new staff with Staley, which speaks to some of the problems that existed through Anthony Lynn's tenure. If you're hiring a new head coach, you need to give them the ability to hire their own full staff. That is part of the interviewing process always. And if you're not willing to invest those resources, then you're not setting up that new coach for success. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, You know, and I think that we're at the juncture now where stability um, has been rewarded. You know, teams who have gone down the path of of broadening their search and kind of making these uh, these hires and then investing in their coaches, we've we've seen it pay dividends. You know, and rarely have we seen it not pay dividends, right? To allow people the breadth and the time to figure it out. But as you pointed out, it it seems like minority candidates are just on a shorter stopwatch. I mean, that's plain and simple. I mean, Vance Joseph got one year in Denver in a, an awful situation to try to figure that out. You know, and uh, and that's not the, that that's not unique to his situation either. Um, and so I think that again, I think the league needs to take a, a good hard look at what happened here. But 
I, I don't know. I think I remember last year, Roger Goodell coming out with uh, the first semi-pseudo impassioned plea that I think he's had as commissioner to say, we need to fix this. We need to get better. They had some of the summits. They've been working on the networking, but uh, like you mentioned, it's uh, kind of a white dude problem and the NFL's got white dude owners. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the reality that we find ourselves. And that said, that noted, um, Let's go down the list here and uh, just want to kind of get your uh, get your feel for it. Uh, so let's start with Urban Meyer uh, in Jacksonville. What 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 grade do you give this one, Jenny? Oh gosh, well I hadn't thought of letter grades, Connor. Um, I would say maybe a C. I would have big concerns about the programs that he led, from some of the issues that he had at Florida to some of the behavior that he aided and abetted, for lack of a better word, uh, or at least allowed to occur under his watch uh, at Ohio State. So those didn't seem to be issues in this rapid hiring process. And in my view, they should have been. Yeah, I just I think that the Jaguars may have might have overthought this a little bit. I'm I'm a C with you as well, because to me, you have a slam dunk first overall pick. You have all this cap space and, you know, the coach comes in and he's talking about how his assistant head coach um, that he just hired, Charlie Strong, also has zero NFL experience. And so the top two people from a coaching perspective have never coached in the NFL. Sure, they have connections with people in the NFL. They know um, how the game is played. But I think that you've seen time and time again the massive leap that these guys have to go through just to get acclimated to how things work, um, to sort of get in, uh, get their feet wet. And you really want to take a risk with that, with a generational quarterback prospect. You know, I don't know. And Urban Meyer's Mm -hmm. never been places for a very long time. The whole thing seems scary to me when there were myriad uh, offensively focused candidates that you could have hired um, if that's the direction you wanted to go in, you know? And so it's just, uh, yeah, that one puzzled me. Not as excited as uh, others uh, with this hire, uh, I'm sure. But, you know, I I don't know. This is not a slam dunk for me. Just like um, Lou Holtz wasn't a slam dunk for the Jets back when they hired him uh, to coach Joe Namath or... um, Steve Spurrier wasn't a slam dunk when Washington hired him. I mean, these are big, massive risks that people are taking here. And uh, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens there. Yeah. Um, the other one, so Dan Campbell, I want to get your take on next. And I am I'm. I don't know what you're kind of uh, thinking with each of these, but I'm mm-hmm. kind of trying to go to the bottom and work my way up a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was not crazy about this hire at all. I think that Dan Campbell, I think the idea behind it is probably a Mike Vrabel type guy where you know he's got that recent former player he's fiery um you know that kind of thing but if you're the lions and you're matt stafford like i'm sitting there like okay i i give up there's nothing else that i can do to help this organization forward like this guy has just been stuck with you know in these bad ideas one after another after another and and maybe dan campbell is going to be a good head coach he had a nice run as the interim head coach of the dolphins um but at the same time it's like that that's where you went with all this you know i don't know it seemed like that there was maybe some better uh, options out there yeah i agree connor the last hire didn't work out the direction they went and i'm surprised they didn't go for an experienced head coach this time around i mean to be honest if you look at the situation you know what you know what candidate would have made a lot of sense connor jim caldwell <laughs> the one yeah. they fired for matt yeah. patricia so um i would also give this one a c and i 
I don't know. Maybe they saw something in Dan Campbell in the process. I have not had very many personal interactions with him, so I don't have a great sense from that. I'm just surprised they didn't go um, in the direction of a, a coach that had experience before, given some of the missteps they had the last couple of years. The one Dan Campbell story that I do know, and this has no bearing on whether or not he's going to be a good head coach, but I did a story on him back when he became the inter- interim head coach of the Dolphins. This. And he was like sitting on a team airplane and everyone was just like, oh yeah, he was just quiet on the flight and his spleen was in the process of like exploding. And then he just got off the plane and walked to the hospital because, you know. Very wild. So yeah, you know, if that's, uh, if you're Detroit, uh, there's something to get fired up about, I guess, right? You have a a coach with a lot of... uh, uh, spleen tolerance, and so uh, you know that's a that's a maybe good that was season. on their list of criteria, Connor. <laughs> People who had uh, calmly suffered a medical emergency on the flight, which you know, who among us, right? Um, you know, hasn't been through that. So. I mean, one time I realized on a flight that I had strep throat because I suddenly fell incredibly ill during the flight. Um, so you know, I guess I would also be qualified if that were a criteria. There you go. Somehow so, uh, strep throat and the spleen um, rupturing don't seem to be in the same category, but, you know, I could tell a good story. So heads up to Detroit when you're uh, <laughs> maybe looking for a new head coach three years from now. Again, you know, Jenny is uh, available, and I promise you, I, I know this uh, from back in the day, that you could, uh, what was the name of the, uh, oh gosh, the... The Don Coriel offense. I know that Jenny knows the Don Coriel offense there inside you go. and out. She could call a good That's right. game with the Don Coriel playbook. I know that. Number system. So, yeah. So there you go. Matt Stafford, if you're listening, uh, give us a call. Uh, so the other one here, uh, Arthur Smith was one of those that I think that a lot of people were talking about, but mm-hmm. then sort of took me by surprise that it actually happened, right? Like it makes sense from a theoretical standpoint. He is a guy who is an offensive coordinator of a team that maximized its talents, but at the same time, like not one of these coordinators that leaps off the page, you know, that gets a ton of airtime on TV or anything like that. And now he's the off- the uh, coordinator or the head coach of the Falcons. I think it makes sense from the standpoint that Matt Ryan's best years were in the Kyle Shanahan system and probably the only the person who's running it as good as Kyle Shanahan it would be LaFleur in Green Bay and Arthur Smith. So maybe this is your attempt at recreating that and maximizing the final years of Matt Ryan's uh, tenure there. I don't know. I'm going to give it a B plus, Connor, which sounds like it might be slightly higher than your grade would be. But I was I was going to go B, so yeah, okay, that's good. Okay, yeah, yeah I, I think there's some interesting possibilities here for the offense, and I didn't know what direction the Falcons were going to go in. I mean, you, oftentimes you see teams go defense offense, which is what they happened to do here. But um, for all of the reasons you said about the offense, I, I could see this working out for the Falcons. Yeah, and then they'll, they'll, well, we have two more. So uh, Brandon Staley, we talked about this a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, now, it's hard because I think that under different circumstances, you know, if the league was properly represented, um, if Anthony Lynn was given a proper, you know, 
uh, a runway here to run the team that he the way that he did, I would have said that I thought this was a good hire because I think that I've always advocated for teams to take more chances, and I do think that this is a big chance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I think what's interesting about Staley um, and his background, a former quarterback, longtime quarterback who became obsessed with Vic Fangio uh, and his defense, learned it from scratch, um, and you know, uh, kind of worked his way up through the NFL that way. It was a rapid rise. Um, he knocked Sean McVay out during his interview, uh, and they stopped the search for a defensive coordinator after that. All that stuff is is well known um and and so i don't know i think in a different circumstance i would have given this an a plus you know i would probably tone it back just based on the circumstances like we talked about i think this is a a b plus hire i think it's uh i think he's one of the better hires of this cycle i think that the problem is like we said it it doesn't feel totally right under the circumstances and you know Maybe we'll see. It's up to him now to take this defense in in L.A. like he did with the Rams and totally maximize it. And now the Rams were on a historic pace uh, this year. I think uh, outside of the last like game or two, they were going to set the record for fewest second-half points allowed in the NFL, which if you're a defensive coordinator and you're judging somebody on something, it's probably your ability to make adjustments at halftime and then and to come out and do that. But I don't know. Altogether, it's, you know, like we said, not the best of circumstances, but I do think an interesting hire uh, in a different world. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it a B minus. Um, I think what I was trying to say earlier in terms of the quick rise, you know, five years ago, he was defensive coordinator, secondary coach for the John Carroll Blue Streaks, which also happens to be where Tom Telesco went to college, the GM mm-hmm. of the Chargers. But again, not saying that a quick rise is not necessarily a good thing. And you're right, Connor, we do advocate coaches going out of the box, but um, I'm going to give it a B minus. And I think one of the reasons is kind of the uncertainty at the offensive coordinator position. I saw NFL network said he might go after Rams OC Kevin O'Connell, but if not, the fallback plan would be Shane Steichen. So there's not a clear plan for the offensive side of the ball. And I think usually that's worked out in the hiring process. So that is one concern. Uh, and generally when you're hiring a younger coach, uh, as your head coach staff is really important. And so it seems like all of that hasn't been worked out a hundred percent before the hiring was announced. So right, I like, guess isn't I that have... where everybody else gets beaten up? You know what I mean? Yes, like, exactly. Yeah, their yeah, staff yeah. wasn't good enough or right. something along those lines. Yeah. So I just find it a little bit strange that the OC hire is still up in the air. Um, and so that's one reason that I'm, I'm just not sure how this will work out for the chargers. Yeah. Um, Robert Sala is the last one. And I feel like, this was the best hire of the cycle. I know that Jenny um, and I were both together during the Rex Ryan era. Um, you can see the power of a coach that comes into this market with a personality and has the ability to galvanize the locker room. I think the Jets desperately needed that. Um, they went with more low-key personalities with the next two hires after Rex for good reason. Maybe they just wanted to recover for a little while. But I think that Sala is all of the good things that you got from Rex, the gregarious personality, the motivating, um, the fact that he's very close to all of his players without 
the the side effects. You know, I don't think you have to worry about him going off the rails. Uh, I don't think you have to worry about him, you know, saying something completely insane, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I think is off, you know, you get one of the two offensive coordinators from San Francisco. And in that way, I think that's a slam dunk. You get to run a great offense. Um, you get that good defensive head coach, but really the CEO guy you're looking for. Um, I don't know. I, I really like the hire for the Jets. I thought that was a good job. Yeah, I would also give the hire an A. Certainly how the quarterback situation works out with any job is a major factor in their success. So there is some uncertainty there. Will it be Sam Darnold moving forward? Will they go a different direction in the draft? Uh, But I think Sala is well-respected by his players. He had success last year, yes, on the 49ers run to the Super Bowl, but he also ran a successful defense this year despite losses to key players, which is another selling point for a coach. And exactly as you referenced, Connor, the staff is so important. Matt LaFleur is an excellent hire for OC, and that's a fantastic tandem going into New York together. So that's another reason why I think the hire is a good one. It's interesting, though, right, Uh, that, uh, you know, so many – so many times you see defensive coordinators get beat up, um, but, you know, you wonder how long you can keep someone like LaFleur if the offense works out, you know, and then, um, but I guess if you're the Jets at this point, you would take one year of quality offense over no years of quality offense at this point, right? I mean, that's kind of got to be your mindset. Like, I don't care how long he's there. Have right. him train somebody in the in the meantime. You know, sure, it looks like he might develop into a head coach, um, especially uh, the the bigger of a run the Packers keep going on here. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I really liked it. I thought it was a fun one. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think Saul is going to be good. I think Saul and Joe Judge will be fun New York coaches, like sort of a spicy young guy rivalry. Like you could see both of them just knocking out push-ups next to each other in the gym, trying to, you know, see who can do the most push-ups or pull-ups or something like that. Well, that I don't would know. be a negative in my book, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Boo for unnecessary displays of masculinity. Mm, true. Yeah, that's true. Like it was, it, it you know, you need like, we had Rex Ryan and Tom Coughlin, which didn't seem like much of a rivalry because like the Giants just kind of laughed them away at every <laughs> at every turn, you know, but this is like, you know, this is like Rocky, you, you know, you could just see both of them like, I don't know, there's just, it was there's good a youthful yeah. energy, you know, there's like a, there's a, an excitement, a palpable excitement in the air for New York football that I haven't felt probably since the years that we have covered those teams. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think this has the potential to be a interesting new chapter. And and you're right. I mean, there was the rivalry over the Snoopy Bowl, which was entirely of Rex Ooh. Ryan's making. Um, <laughs> so we can only hope for a sequel to that. Yes, bring back the Snoopy Bowl heat, everybody. Let's do it. All right, so uh, let's move on to news topic number three, and we'll start talking about the weekend that was um, – before we talk about the weekend that will be first uh, the browns the ravens the saints and the rams all lost this weekend all those teams were good enough to make it here um but their circumstances going forward wildly different so i'll ask you jenny which of these four teams that lost this weekend do you see as having the brightest future moving forward a team that will uh, oh, you're very positive will be back here next year and possibly advancing even further well this is an interesting question connor Because I think other than the Saints, which have a lot to figure out, it's sort of a transitional time for them. 
the other three are on a good path, I think. Uh, the obvious choice would be the Browns. I do think they built something this year that is a good foundation to build off of. You detailed that really well in your story Friday about talk to Andrew Barry about how they got the franchise turned around and what worked and the sort of small daily gestures that led to a season like this one. I'm going to pick this one because I know you don't feel the same way, Connor. So I'm going to go with the one bird team among the bunch and we can have a healthy debate about this. How about that? I like that. Let's do it. Okay. So I actually feel like the future is pretty bright for the Ravens. And I know you wrote a column and you made some very good points that perhaps this is a ceiling. Yes. Thank you, Shelby. We were concerned that there would not be an opening for bird noises in this show, but we managed to create one. So excellent work, Shelby. Um, I mean, yes, there have been three somewhat early playoff exits this year. They got the first round win and then they lost in the divisional round. But um, Lamar Jackson had a bad throw. He made a bad decision and it turned into a pick six. Uh, And then he exited the game very shortly thereafter with a concussion. Uh, Also, it was a strange game with the whipping, whirling winds in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't feel like that is representative of where this team is headed. My thought is the Ravens simply need to go out and do what Buffalo did for Josh Allen, get him a Stephon Diggs, get Lamar Jackson a number one receiver, and allow the passing game to take the step forward that we thought they were going to take this year. But one, it was difficult to do that in an offseason where you didn't have regular work. Now, I know the Bills did it, but they also got digs. So Lamar Jackson doesn't have that. The connection with Marquise Brown ran hot and cold in the season. They need a big-bodied receiver. They need like an A.J. Brown type who can change a drive on a single play. And then I think the Bravens will be on a good course. See, I totally agree with you. Okay. Um, so um, uh, that was, you know, and I felt bad, you know, because a lot of that is on somebody writing a column is like, you know, you want that to be represented. It's like, yes, like I think that, you know, they were doing all that they could. And I think that the reason that they looked so much like they had in years past was this in like the personnel department, just not allowing them to evolve the way that they should. You know, Mm -hmm. I think there was a natural progression here. I don't think that Greg Broman's a bad offensive coordinator. And I certainly don't think that Lamar Jackson's a bad quarterback. But when you're running the same offense two years in a row, and all you're doing is taking weapons away or Mm -hmm. letting weapons disappear, of course, I think there's going to be, you know, kind of a hard ceiling that you play on yourself that said I mean you're right if you get an AJ Brown type in there it's it's a whole new ball game and I think that's going to be fascinating my argument for the Browns uh, would would be just that I think that they're incredibly young I think that whether or not you get Odell Beckham back and whether or not that this is something that's going to be functional for you moving forward um, you know I I'm a sucker for a good plan I think that they're the what they're building moving forward I think works if we can see Baker Mayfield take some of the steps forward that he needs to take, which again is a big if. I would love if Lamar Jackson was there and the roles were flipped. I'd feel a lot more confident. But I think that what they're doing works. My fear with picking Cleveland on the flip side is that so much of it is hinged on these sort of really good running backs that they have, right? And how Mm -hmm. fickle are those situations always moving forward? You know, you've Mm -hmm. gotten pretty much all the toothpaste out of the tube with Kareem Hunt. Do you really think that that's going to be something moving forward? Nick Chubb was injured for part of this season. 
Um, and so that's always sort of a tenuous thing. Uh, the offensive line is good, but we saw in Dallas, how hard is that to keep together too for a long term? You know, and all these things start to break down. W- will they be able to keep regenerating stuff like this? But mm-hmm. The one thing that I liked moving uh, forward in Cleveland that I did learn from the stories that they're a big survey team, um, you know, and so maybe that's something that I will adopt with Jenny um, in the Weekside podcast. After every decision that they make, they send out a survey and they say, did you like what we did here? Did you not like what we did here? We're going to tabulate the results and we're going to send them back to you with an action plan on how we're going to change things. And so I think that, you know, I'm going to adopt that here at the Weekside podcast. If, if nothing else, the podcast will get markedly better. But maybe a survey can save the Browns, too. <laughs> I, I am nervous, but excited for the idea, Connor. I'm looking forward to the first survey. And I, I think that's well said. It's a good point you make about the running backs. But obviously what Kevin Stefanski brought was a clear vision for the offense that could get the best out of Baker Mayfield. I think he played really well the second half of the season. And so I do think there is a bright future there. And certainly this was a exciting playoff run for the franchise. And they came close to advancing to the AFC Championship. I would have had such a hard time um, if they would have won that game under those circumstances. Like I just, you know, I was sitting there watching it and you're trying to think of what to write off of a game like that. And even if the Browns won, like, yes, there's that element of, oh my God, Cleveland. And I think I feel almost the same way in Buffalo, right? Where the Ravens almost came back and made that a game at the end of the game. Like if Lamar Jackson was in there and had that same throw um, that the Ravens did under those circumstances late in that game, we would be talking about a different circumstance, different scenario there. Mm -hmm. I think that Baltimore could have given them a run for their money if they had Lamar Jackson and so it's weird like you know you don't want to give it too much you know I don't know I think Cleveland comes back and does it on their own accord at some point and I think they're good enough to do that they showed that but just wasn't the timing wasn't right for everything this year yeah well said Connor all right now let's look forward so topic number four preview time give me your thoughts on Chiefs Bills who wins and why the Bills, and because uh, I'm sick of hearing from all of you, uh, <laughs> so the Bills. I think the Bills are going to win this Super Bowl and every Super Bowl from now until uh, my <laughs> my demise, okay? Th- that's what I think. And you were right, and I was wrong, and the Bills are good this year, and I understand. And that's that's where we're going to go. But I don't know. I, I liked I liked Buffalo. I thought they... Uh, I. I defensively I thought what was really interesting about that uh, Baltimore game was their ability to totally change who they were um, I think the Ravens cut their blitzing in half during that game and Buffalo doubled their uh, blitzing that they normally do and so it just shows Sean McDermott's kind of command on the offense there uh, it was really fascinating too that they went from a majority man team to a majority zone team to try to confuse Lamar Jackson in the offense and that seemed to pay off especially with that big interception down by the goal line so I think that they have tricks up their sleeve defensively that they have not let on yet. I think the team plays incredibly hard. And I think if the Chiefs are sleepwalking even a little bit, uh, they're going to get nipped in the heels. And if Patrick Mahomes isn't playing, too, I think that that's obviously a, a major factor, too. Yeah, so that is the big question mark at this point. Andy Reid at his press conference Monday just said that Mahomes is in the protocol and seems to leave it a little bit open as to whether he actually had a concussion or not. Uh, He was in the concussion protocol and was removed from the game. Um, But 
seemed to say that because of the way he got up and was stumbling around that he was required to go into the protocol. So until there is clarity on Mahomes' status for this game, uh, I'm not sure what to think. And even if he is ultimately cleared from the game, um, or for the game, excuse me, which is a quick turnaround, we should note, um, probably will have had his practice time, preparation time impacted in some way. If Mahomes plays, I'm going to go with the Chiefs, Connor. I, I agree with you. The Bills have had a, I think you called them a team of destiny last week on the show, and they certainly do look like it. And I regret picking against them last week. Although, as you just noted, if Lamar Jackson had the ability to close out the game, who knows what could have happened down the stretch. But they have a strong defense, obviously, Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, their offense can can put up points to compete with Mahomes and company. But uh, I still like the defending champions. Uh, I still think they're the tough out and the creativity of that offense will always give an opposing defense fits. Can I let you in on a little uh, secret? Yes. So last week, um, our editor, Mitch Goldich, uh, is, you know, I feel bad. I forget to do my picks every week. And Mitch, Mitch's schedule depends on when I get them in. And he's very nice about giving me a long breadth of time before he says, you moron, you forgot to do the picks again. And so this time I did. I forgot to do the picks right up until the last minute, like always. And, you know, uh, I, I had my two-year-old daughter. She was fussing around, not happy. And I said, you know what, Evie? Come here, you're going to make the picks. You will make the picks for dad this week. And I showed her how to do it. And she got every single one of them right, except for um, the Buccaneers Saints was the one game that she missed. Um, but she is, uh, she liked Bills. Like, I think the idea of that, like, maybe because we have cousins and uncles named, friends named Bill, that the idea that that was their team, you know, and also their blue, which I've told her is my favorite color. And she's very into whose favorite colors there are. So, you know, I, I, I feel like we're kind of adopting the Bills as our unofficial uh, team of, of the ore house at this point so well that's an impressive performance for your daughter on picks connor uh, i think i was also three out of four i missed the bills ravens i had picked the ravens but you're running uh, away with this thing this year picks no champion. i mean mitch goldish has gained a, a game on me because he had the bills and so it's it's a tight race towards the Ooh. end which he reminds me every week so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that i will find a way to mess it up with the remaining three games connor no chance. <laughs> All right. What do we have for the last topic? All right. So uh, let's do the other game here. So we have Packers, Buccaneers. Uh, as you noted, the Buccaneers uh, laid a whooping on Green Bay when they played during the regular season. But the Packers look unstoppable, as uh, you uh, very wisely noted in your column off of their game this weekend. So I don't know. What do you think? Uh, are are we still hot on the Packers here, or was there anything that you saw in the Raven or the Rams game that made you even the slightest bit nervous about this moving forward? No, I'm I'm still hot on the Packers, Connor. Uh, I thought they looked like a really complete team. The stop they made on the Rams' final possession, you know, plays from Jair Alexander, and then there was that uh, fourth down play where Zadarius Smith was pressuring from the inside and. Rashawn Gary was able to come around the outside and make the play. And then just, of course, the creativity and the ability uh, of Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it, it really has been a 
the marriage between him and Matt LaFleur has really come into its own in its second year. And we saw that with a pair of goal line touchdowns. You know, there was the one where Devontae Adams went across the formation and then back. And basically there was no way for Jalen Ramsey to cover him man to man. And we talked a little bit about this on the morning, Monday morning podcast, but that is such a smart way to design a play. Now it looked like Rogers was kind of pointing for him to go back and forth Maybe it was part of the play design. I don't know 100% for sure, but you always hear defensive coaches say, whenever you have a player like that that moves across the formation, it, it makes it so much harder for the defensive back because the offensive player knows where he's going. So in that case, Adams knows he's going one way and then coming back. And not only that, Jalen Ramsey kind of had to go around his safety. So he had a longer path. There just was no way. And then, of course, the improvisation by Rodgers when Leonard Floyd's in his face. And so he pump fakes to get Leonard Floyd to go for the bat and jump up instead of tackling Rodgers, which gives him enough time to make it out to the edge and get across the pylon for the one-yard touchdown run. So just plays like that really were pretty marvelous and really fun to watch and just made me think that it really does look like they're on the kind of role you need to have this time of year. I'm going to try to make a Rocky analogy here. Uh, okay. I've, I've been working it out in my head and I'm, I'm about 50%, maybe 45% on this. So, uh, uh, let take it take it as you will, but the like marriage Rocky the movie. No, no. like oh, like, like Rocky, like tentative. Okay, like go ahead. like I'm afraid of what's about oh, okay. to come out of my go mouth. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so I was um, gonna say if it's a movie. Count me out. <laughs> no, I think this might be a movie that uh, I I think this I think I might have you on this pop okay. culture reference here. I think that the marriage between Aaron Rodgers and Matt Lafleur is analogous to the one uh, between the couple on Greece. Um, and you know, I think that, uh, Matt LaFleur being John Travolta and then Aaron Rodgers being Olivia Newton-John because, you know, Matt LaFleur walks into this job and says, yeah, you know, uh, summer days wasting away. Like I, I, I got this great quarterback and I don't have anything to worry about all of a sudden. Aaron Rodgers turns around with a cigarette in his mouth and says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you know, you got to work for this now. You, you know, you got to, you got to be my, you got to learn to be my man here. Uh, you know, this is not just, I, I'm not just in love with you. You don't own me. Uh, you know, you have to work for it. And I think he put in the work. And at the end of the movie, right, they just fly off into space in a car together, right? Is that, is that what I, happens at I the end of Greece? I don't know. I mean, I'm loosely familiar with the characters, but I don't know of you know the part where scenes. she kind of like stomps out the cigarette and and like and, yeah, yeah vaguely yeah, yeah. I can have a vague recollection of this. <laughs> Is that what even happened in the movie? Or am I I'm, I'm Connor again, like wrong audience here. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, I don't know. It's been a long pandemic, but uh, I would say that yes, I, that that's sort of how I view the marriage, where it was like they kind of had to chase each other a little bit. Um, they each kind of dug in their heels for a little bit, but now it's uh, it's grease lightning, as they might say. <laughs> I mean, I really like this. I think this is a, a really uh, good analogy. I thought we were going to go maybe, I don't know if you've watched Bridgerton on Netflix, which is, you know, all the rage right now. I feel like there might be a, a corollary there, but I really like that. It was a detailed analogy. From what you <laughs> described, it seems to be an accurate one. Again, I'm loosely familiar with the plot and the songs, but really not the details of any specific scenes in Greece. So again, I'm falling short in that category. But If you're yeah. familiar with the plot of Greece, please leave us a review <laughs> in, in, uh, in iTunes and let us know uh, what happens at the end of the movie Greece, because it's clearly... Just, 
Connor yeah. didn't have this planned out before he opened his mouth. Similar to last week where we <laughs> asked for what time zone Hawaii is in. I mean, this is really our way of finding out information that we are unfamiliar <laughs> with. While we're on the topic of this game, though, we should give a shout out to one of our loyal listeners, Pete, who has written in again. And Pete has written in several times about Tampa Bay. And we expressed skepticism early on. But Pete was all in on the Bucks, And he wrote in again, just saying he felt like it was a good time to check in about Tampa. And you are right, Pete. Pete. We give you credit. You saw it. I didn't I didn't trust it early on. Although I did pick the Bucks in this game. I did think they would they would beat the Saints. Um and uh, you you note, Pete, that your hope is that they haven't peaked too soon. Uh, either way, they're significant in the postseason, which as a long-suffering Bucks fan is really exciting. I will be enjoying this NFC Championship game and anything that comes beyond it. Good for you, Pete. Yeah, that was an awesome email. And yes, I, I'm glad you reached back out because you were right and we are wrong. And we are always happy to admit that on the Weekside Podcast. That's what it's all about. Do, do you know how exhausting it would be? And, you know, I, I know that we are some of our contemporaries in this business, you know, that's just what they do. But like to just not admit that you're wrong, like it feels so good to admit that I'm wrong. It's just like a weight that's been lifted off my shoulders. Like, yeah, I I thought the Buccaneers were going to be terrible. Kind of <laughs> hoped they were going to be terrible. And I'm wrong. And so there we go. You know? Yeah. That's I mean, it. that defense was really impressive on Sunday evening. Uh, Todd Bowles has done a fantastic job with that unit. I know he's interviewing with the Eagles and probably should have had more time with the Jets as well, but has really done a tremendous job there in in Tampa Bay. Yeah. Um, All right. So we're going to pivot over to the Oracle, which I'm glad that you brought up uh, Todd Bowles, because I do think that um, I do think that there's tangentially a point that I want to make about the Eagles coaching search uh, for my prediction. And that here's what I think. And here's what I hope moving forward before it was always, you have to fire your head coach earlier to get a jump on the process right and to make sure that another team doesn't beat you to the punch with philadelphia you know as chaotic as the organization has been they have made some good head coaching hires over the years andy reed being one doug peterson they won a super bowl with um and i'm hoping and moderately predicting that if the eagles end up finding success by waiting until close to after the super bowl or after the super bowl to hire Jeffrey Lurie will just by means of association motivate other owners to stop doing what they're doing now, which is just basically a five car pileup. And, you know, you're just going to, you know, do what you're going to do and hire who you're going to hire. I think we're seeing a lot of good names, good coordinator names and everything frozen right now, waiting to see where all the pieces land. And if you're the Eagles, all of a sudden, all the games are going to be done and you might have your pick between, I don't know, Brian Dable, Eric Bieniemy, Todd Bowles, like all these really good guys that were thought to be the first off the board type names anyway. And now you have, you're all waiting on, they're all waiting on you to make that decision. And I would like the Eagles to knock this hire out of the park so that we can continue down this path of pragmatic coaching hires waiting out the season a little bit longer and stopping this sort of insanity that we've seen sort of play out over the last few years, especially. Connor, that's a great Oracle. The Colts, of course, a few years ago yep. uh, had success with hiring Frank Gregg. Now that was because their process went awry. They were <laughs> going the Josh McDaniels route and had an unexpected curveball. But regardless, despite the fact that they were the last team to hire and pick 
their next head coach, it worked out well for them, right? Has been a very good hire for the Colts. And so every point you made is spot on. And really, so many people around the league want the NFL to slow down the hiring process and put it off until after the Super Bowl. And the, I just don't understand why that hasn't happened at this point. I mean, there are coaches that are hired after the Super Bowl and thus can't get a jump until after that happens. So if there's one coach in that situation, any of the others who are hired that cycle could also be in that situation and be fine moving forward. So, but anything to slow down the process and if that results in a good hire for the Eagles, you're right, Connor, that you know it would perhaps spark some teams to be a little bit more uh, intentional and deliberate with their decision-making processes. It's almost like the Eagles are John Travolta. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. Um, all right. Now on to uh, the most important uh, part of the show, uh, as listeners have called it, the heart and soul of the Weekside podcast, the Frentis Consensus. What do we got this week? Consensus. We talked earlier in the show, Connor, about the role of ownership in making sure that the efforts to expand the Rooney Rule or to actually have the Rooney Rule work as intended, um, their end of the bargain in holding that up. But I think another factor that we should really look at here is this past spring, one of the measures the league took was to expand the Rooney Rule so that for an open coordinator position, teams had to also interview a candidate of color. Before this point, the Rooney Rule was not extended to coordinator positions. And already in this cycle, Connor, I'm a little bit concerned that that is not taking place. So places like Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Seattle would fall into this category. Now, I'm told that the Rooney Rule expansion for coordinators does not apply to new staffs being assembled. And that's a logistical thing, I think, because when you interview for a head coaching job, part of your interview is presenting the staff that you would like to bring with you. So it would be a complicating factor. Although I will say that that is somewhat of a loophole then because you're essentially having seven new staffs with coordinators hired and you're not compelling those choices to consider coordinators of color. So that is one limitation of the expansion of the rule. But for the, the places that have had coaches in place and are hiring new offensive coordinators, already we've seen that the 49ers reportedly plan to elevate Mike McDaniel to offensive coordinator and Pittsburgh plans to elevate Matt Canada. And I have not seen a lot of conversation, Connor, and forgive me if I've missed it, but it does not appear that these places have had conversations with candidates of color. Mm -hmm. Seattle is also an opening. It seems like they're casting a wide net. I did see it reported last week that they had a conversation with Anthony Lynn. Some other names that came up today were Adam Gase, and there's one other that I'm blanking on at this point in time. Um, so it seems like perhaps Seattle is engaging in those steps. But the idea of Pitt and San Francisco promoting from within without considering other candidates, uh, it, it seems to me to, to, to run afoul of this new extension of the rule. And the whole idea is to maybe consider candidates you might not have considered. And I understand that you know your own staff well and you know promoting from within is not an uncommon procedure. But I do think in workplaces, it's important to have opportunities for job uh, advancement. And I think, you know, through my work with the Guild, you see that a lot of other shops have as part of their CBAs types job advancement things where, you know, internal candidates get a serious look. And if you don't get the job, you get an explanation why. This would be sort of that opportunity where you could, 
you know, other candidates on staff besides the one that the head coach in mind could have a chance to say, you know what, you might not have thought of me as somebody who wanted to be a coordinator. I mean, I remember that was an issue with Anthony, Anthony Lynn on Rex Ryan's staff is like he had him kind of pigeonholed as a running backs coach and never kind of considered the idea that he could or would want to be a coordinator, despite the fact that he would have been a good one. It wasn't until uh, he went to Buffalo and there was a change there and, and that opportunity materialized. So I think sort of compelling teams to, A, this is the new rule. You need to meet those requirements that the league passed this spring. Otherwise, in the first year of the rule, you're already seeing it not work. And B, it gives you an opportunity to hear presentations, to consider people on the staff and make sure that people who have these aspirations get the chance to interview in front of you. And maybe you have a different view after that. I'm going to try another uh, dicey analogy here, um, but I feel like it, it's almost like you're cutting off by ignoring this rule. Like teams have been ignoring the Rooney rule um, in spirit for years, but by ignoring this rule, which would prevent minority coaches from getting into the valuable spots that they would need to springboard into head coaching jobs, you're almost cutting off the water supply at the source as opposed to, um, you know, at the spigot or whatever it comes out. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, Connor. I think you're spot on with that. So just as important in terms of getting the owners to consider candidates of color or have a broader pool of candidates for head coaching jobs, just as important is making sure that these candidates advance from position coach to coordinators or have the opportunity to do so. So if this ex- this extension of the rule was intended to do that, but so far it doesn't seem as though it's being abided by. Like look at look at Pep Hamilton this year, right? Uh, you know he comes in and has a large hand along with Anthony Lynn in the development of Justin Herbert. And Pep Hamilton was a guy that everyone was talking about as a head coaching candidate eight years ago with Andrew Luck, and then it never materialized. He went to college, he went to the XFL, and then worked his way back onto an NFL staff. And everyone's like, oh yeah, like oh yeah, that guy could probably be an offensive coordinator. And it's like, yeah, but why does certain people have to basically circumnavigate the planet to get another crack at this? Um, And I think part of the reason is what you're saying. Like the rule was put in place for a reason. And again, everybody is just blowing right past it. And I think in a lot of ways, it feels like that's what you know, it's sort of a hallmark of the league where they're just like, they put a policy in place, the owners all just blow past it, and then they say, well, we tried, what else are we going to do, you know? And and that's sort of like troubling to me a little bit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, 100%. I think Pep Hamilton is a great example, Connor. And so it's something to keep, we're going to have to keep an eye on in this hiring process, although it does seem that like, those promotions from within, that seems to be the direction that those teams are going. So... Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the league does uh, to kind of remind teams or compel teams to comply with the new rule. Absolutely, yeah. That's a we should do a uh, we should do a weak side tracker just to let everybody know that we're keeping our eye on it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. As long with the surveys, Connor, we can, pa- <laughs> we can pair them up. Really looking forward to this, by the way. Are you satisfied with me as a co-host on a scale of one to ten? Please just give me above a two. That's all I'm looking for. Just a How three. How good of a job does Shelby do with the sound effects? Oh, ten. Ten. She- Shelby would just, you know, talk about just knocking out the surveys out of the park. Shelby would be the Nick Chubb of the Brown survey process. That That's guy right. gets a ten on everything every week. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a jam-packed show. We'll have lots more to talk about next week and in the weeks to come, but... 
As always, thank you everybody for joining us on this week's episode of the Weekside Podcast, which is B, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston, king of the sound effects. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show on Apple Podcasts, and the show is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts.